Here we are on the 5th of May, 2020, in Authentic Biochemistry Podcast Studios with the door wide open, enjoying some of this beautiful May weather we're getting out here. And I'm going to proceed with this lecture on general endocrinology, hormonal biology, if you want to call it that. And so let's go right into it. We were talking about the fact that there are ligands and receptors in hormone biology. So let's talk more about (coughs) protein receptors. What is the regulation of the receptor response, one might ask? First of all, there's an ability of a cell to respond to a particular hormone. And how that happens depends on the presence of specific receptors for that hormone or within that cell or the number of receptors on that cell surface if it happens to be associated with the plasma membrane. So target cells are able to regulate their responsiveness to any given hormone by altering the receptor number, affinity, and even efficiency of association or coupling to some kind of intracellular response, right? So you need to be able to traverse the signal from ligand binding to the receptor and the receptor signaling from that interaction. Now, receptor specificity and affinity is something we need to discuss. So specificity refers to a molecular um, fit of a hormone or some ligand within a receptor or in association with certain chemical functional groups in that receptor molecule at a specific location in that molecule that is exposed. And we call that a receptor binding pocket. And so the affinity describes the degree of tightness that the hormone receptor bond um, demonstrates or in the inclination of the hormone maybe to stay bound to the receptor. So whether or not it's held tight enough to carry out a subsequent function, because now you have two molecules interacting, right? Or if it can be easily displaced by some other molecule of similar structure. So this receptor specificity and affinity, of course, is going to directly affect the potency uh, of the hormone, right? So you get receptor downregulation and upregulation, obviously. Downregulation occurs when cells are exposed to high concentrations of hormone, for example, particularly for a prolonged temporal axis. And that results in a decrease in the number of receptors. So those receptors that are constantly being fired by ligand binding when you get an overload of ligand binding, there is a mechanism whereby the cell takes in those receptors and endogenously takes them from the plasma membrane into the cytoplasm and either stores them there so that when the amount of interactions with ligand and receptor that are remaining start to slow down, or if it doesn't slow down, or if it's a very potent hormone receptor binding event, 
then those receptors that have been moved into the cytoplasm are basically proteolytically degraded. They're broken down completely. In, in organelles similar to an autophagolysisome. So that's how downregulation can occur. This is something that's been observed in drugs of addiction. So people who take, for example, opiates, the uh, opioid receptor that um, is receiving the signal from morphine or from heroin, um, those receptors, when they're constantly being bound to the illicit drug, they're, they're overloaded sufficiently that the receptors that are constantly being um, bathed with this uh, addictive drug become endocytosed and they become degraded. That's how the dose response curve for the need for a higher amount of drug um, proceeds. So every time you take a drug, an illicit drug, it's binding to a receptor. And that can be any kind of drug basically has to bind to a receptor for its function to be um, realized. You uh, are conditioning the system in such a way that you get receptor endocytosis. And because of that, there are fewer receptors that will bind to the ligand, which is the drug. And after a while, you need more and more of the drug for the same uh, essential effect, whatever that effect is, like getting high. So this is how the dose response curve for people that are taking not just opiates, but cannabis or cocaine or any drug of recreation that you can think about, alcohol as well, you build up a tolerance to it because the response from that concentration of that drug to that receptor diminishes over time because the receptor is removed so that you don't, so that the cell doesn't deal with a constant stimulation of only one axis of one pathway because that looks to the cell as a pathology, right? That's a pathology to have only one or two things functioning because of an overloading of one particular circuit. So you also get upregulation, and that occurs in response to a chronically low concentration of hormone. Again, going back to the endogenous, not to the exogenous illicit drug uh, description. Of course, it doesn't have to be an illicit drug. Any drug that's pharmaceutical, any drug that binds to a receptor, the same thing happens. You build up a tolerance to that drug. Now, there are ways to um, chemically synthesize the drug with the right kind of molecular epitopes so that its residence time in the receptor is not recognized as such. And with a low steady state chronic level of that drug, you can achieve a homeostasis or a plateauing of whatever the function of that drug binding to its receptor is expected to deliver. Right? So I should mention that, that there are ways to design drugs pharmaceutically, um, pharmacochemically, so that the drug is not induce that downregulation. Likewise, upregulation, when there's a low concentration, that can result in an increase in the number of receptors, more receptors, which means you have less ligand binding, but because there are more receptors, there's more of an opportunity for those receptors to be bound. Okay? Now, that causes the cell to become more sensitive to the hormone because now you have a higher concentration within the membrane plasma membrane, for example, uh, or it could be any endogenous membrane as well, but you have a high enough um, concentration of the receptor 
that it's the whole system will be more sensitive to even a small amount of the potential ligand or drug or hormone. You see? So that's up and down regulation. Um, there's also something in pharmacology called permissiveness. Hormones can increase the number of receptors for other hormones, and that then enhances the effect of the second hormone. So that is like with thyroid hormone, adipose tissue, epinephrine, and fatty acids, all of those hormones can be recognized in adipocytes. That allows cellular events to occur in a sequence, if indeed those receptors are carrying out a sequential event, right? So like estrogen secreted early in the menstrual cycle causes an increase in the number of uterine receptors for the next hormone that's going to be involved in that cycle, which is progesterone. So there's another term that we can start using, and they're called agonists and antagonists. Hormone antagonist, just like it sounds, is some kind of chemical that binds to a receptor, and it doesn't initiate a typical response, okay? So it binds, it may fit directly into that uh, pocket, right, that particular amino acid motif pocket in that protein, somewhere embedded in that protein an active site, if you want to call it that. Uh, but it doesn't continue the process. The process freezes there. Because of that, you have a drug now that is occupying a receptor site, but is not, A, inducing the downstream signal, and B, not being metabolized once that occurs, and even C, maintaining its residence there, thus blocking the natural ligand. So that's what pure antagonism is. Now, an agonist can bind hormone receptors and cause the same or very similar intracellular downstream event that would occur with the regular hormone receptor interaction. Now, there's, of course, a lot of caveat to that because an agonist uh, is not um, going to be endogenously regulated like a natural ligand, a natural hormone because of all the steps necessary in terms of feedback control mechanisms, for example, or feed-forward mechanisms, uh, or subcellular trafficking, or partial degradation, conversion via the convertase sense, as we talked about with uh, POMC, for example. And all of that, then, you see, um, plays into the role of being an agonist. And when you have an exogenous drug being introduced as an agonist, it's not going to be controlled the same way as an endogenous agonist, or that is the pure true ligand. And of course, then you're going to also have competition for the agonist or the antagonist with the natural ligand, right? If you have a receptor for a drug that's made by a pharmaceutical company, you can be quite confident that there is an endogenous biochemical that normally fires that receptor. Otherwise, how, why would you have a receptor that would only bind to an exogenous drug that had no genetic, there was no genetic uh, advantage to having that receptor unless there was a chemical very similar to it, either that is ingested regularly or that is synthesized endogenously. So, Let's not talk about something specific. And it's well 
rehearsed and discussed in many of my video lectures. And that's the hypothalamic pituitary endocrine system. So the pituitary gland has another name. It's called the hypophysis. And it's located beneath, hypo means below, the hypothalamus in the cella tersica. It's connected to the hypothalamus by the pituitary stalk, and it's composed of an anterior, we call that the adenohypophysis, and a posterior, we call, and call that the neurohypophysis. And those are, when, you, when you're describing those anterior and anterior, anterior and posterior, they're called lobes, right, of the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamic system regulates endocrine function of, of the anterior pituitary by secreting, releasing, and inhibiting hormones into the portal system between the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And that transports then capillary blood directly from the hypothalamus to the capillaries of the anterior lobe. So release of posterior pituitary hormones occurs when action potentials generating the hypothalamic neuro neuron at the synapse travel down the axon to the pituitary stalk and trigger exocytosis of that given hormone from the nerve terminus to the posterior pituitary gland. So that's how the signal is uh, affected. So hormones of the posterior pituitary are things like oxytocin and antidiuretic hormone or ADH. They're produced in the neurons of the hypothalamus. They're packaged and travel in vesicles along the neural axon to the posterior pituitary gland, and they're released ultimately by depolarization of the appropriate hypothalamic neuron and the conduction of action potential then to the neural terminus in the posterior pituitary. The antidiuretic hormone we mentioned a few minutes ago, the ADH, is released in response to an altered serum osmolality, and basically that is correlated to hypotension. So there are osmoreceptors, and they detect this altered osmolality, and there are baroreceptors that detect low BP, low blood pressure. Uh, and, of course, the corollary to that is hypovolemia, right, low volume of, of blood. So the ADH release causes water retention by increasing water reabsorption by the renal collecting duct. So that's what the ADH is functioning at. Or about the ADH, primary targets are vasopressin 2 receptors, they're called V2 receptors, of the basolateral membrane of the distal renal tubule cells. That's again in the kidney. ADH causes pores to move from the cytoplasm to the cell membranes of apical tubular epithelial cells. This allows free diffusion of water from the tubular fluid back into the cell. So like oxytocin, which again is a hormone of the posterior pituitary, is released during sexual activity, childbirth, and in breastfeeding. It causes uterine and milk duct, ductal cell contraction. There's a stretching of the cervix, which increases oxytocin release, and that increases also uterine contraction. Stimulation of the nipple and areola triggers oxytocin release. 
which binds to the myoepithelial cells surrounding the, what are called the mild ducts, milk ducts, causing them to contract and eject milk during breastfeeding. Furthermore, hormones of the hypothalamus anterior pituitary gland, there's a three-tiered axis here, okay? Three-tiered axis. Hypothalamic release and inhibiting hormones, anterior pituitary hormones, and then the target hormones, okay? So all three of these things are occurring. All hypothalamic releasing and inhibiting hormones are, as far as have been described so far, peptides, with the exception of dopamine, of course, but all of these are water-soluble, okay? So this hypothalamic system, these are all water-soluble. You're not going to find lipids here. So, so hormones of the hypothalamus and anterior pituitary gland also include growth hormone. So pituitary GH release is controlled by a hypothalamic release of growth hormone releasing hormone. Uh, certainly not a lot of creativity in naming of these uh, compounds, but that's given the nickname GHRH. And there is indeed a circadian pattern to GH secretion. The growth hormone targets the liver and it affects liver metabolism and induces the production of another protein called the insulin-like growth factor 1 or IGF-1. Muscle and adipose tissue also are targets and that increases muscle mass, okay, this is growth hormone now, and decreases fat mass. And it's believed to work through an induction of lipolysis and beta-oxidation of fatty acids in that particular bioenergetic mechanism. Growth hormone also affects metabolic processes in general by increasing the rate of protein synthesis, decreasing protein catabolism, slowing carbohydrate utilization and yet increasing the mobilization of fatty acids and the use of fatty acids for energy via beta oxidation. There's a negative feedback loop between that IGF-1 and there's also hypoglycemia when there's a rise in amino acids or starvation or long-term fasting, exercise, all of these can stimulate growth hormone secretion. So what are some metabolic actions of the growth hormone you might be interested in knowing? For carbohydrate metabolism, you get an increase in blood glucose, so it's working on gluconeogenesis or glycogenolysis. There's a decrease in peripheral insulin sensitivity so that you get less glucose uptake. There's an increase in the hepatic output of glucose, as again is gluconeogenesis, or the breakdown of glycogen to glucose and then translocation out. And then finally, administration also results in increased serum insulin levels, okay? So proteins that are associated with growth hormone, there's an increased tissue amino acid uptake. There's an increased incorporation into polypeptide of those amino acids. There's a decrease in urea production because you're saving that alpha amino group. And there's a production of positive nitrogen balance via GH. In terms of lipids, GH has pretty much been universally shown to be lipolytic. Uh, can be even ketogenic after long-term administration, particularly if insulin is deficient. In terms of the insulin-like growth factor we've been talking about, it stimulates IGF production, as we said, 
It stimulates growth, and it is indeed mitogenic. So it can lead to some kinds of, when there's a corruption or disturbance, it can lead to cancer, particularly in the central nervous system, by the way. Hormones of the hypothalamus and the anterior pituitary gland also include prolactin. Right? Prolactin is secreted, in fact, its secretion is inhibited by something called the prolactin inhibiting factor, or PIF. And this is dopamine, ultimately been discovered, and so it's produced by the hypothalamus as well. It acts directly on numerous cell types. There are trophic effects on breast tissue development and on lactation from prolactin, and there's the ability to suppress reproductive function in men and women by suppress, suppressing the hypothalamic gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which controls its prolactin. So now we have to talk about gonadotropins. Follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, luteinizing hormone, LH, the stimulation of testosterone in men and estrogen and progesterone in women. The release is stimulated by the hypothalamic gonadotropin-releasing hormone. That's also known as GRH. It's inhibited by a negative feedback from steroids, particularly those associated with um, the reproductive system. Thyroid-stimulating hormones, another hormone of the hypothalamus and anterior pituitary. So thyrotropes release TSH in response to, and TSH is the thyroid-stimulating hormone, of course, in response to hypothalamic thyrotropin-releasing hormone which is TRH, so it binds the TSH receptors on follicle cells of the thyroid, and you get a negative feedback regulation of the TRH and the TSH through a concentration of circulating end product, thyroxine T3. We also have the adrenocorticotropic hormone, or ACTH, which again, we have discussed in great detail. Produced by corticotropes in the anterior pituitary in response to the hypothalamic corticotropin-releasing hormone, that's the CRH. It binds to a GS-coupled receptor on cells in the adrenal cortex. It stimulates the production of both cortisol and adrenal androgens. It's all being conducted by this ACTH, the adrenocorticotropic hormone. What about in the anterior pituitary gland? You get adrenocorticotropic hormone, okay? Trophic effects on the adrenal cortex and supports the structure and the synthetic enzymes of that gland. Both CRH and ACTH have a significant diurnal pattern with a peak on when early morning, like after waking up, and then there's a valley or depression of the amount of CRH and ACTH as the evening progresses. We also have a negative feedback regulation of ACTH through the actions of cortisol that suppresses CRH and ACTH release, not synthesis, but release. Thyroid gland secretes this thyroid hormone or thyroxine T4 or the more common one found in the blood, the triodothyronine or T3. Follicular cells of the thyroid gland produce and secrete these thyroid hormones. 
trap dietary iodine and transport it into the colloid along with an enzyme, thyroid peroxidase. That's how you get iodination of this protein. Uh, in terms of thyroid hormones, approximately 90% of the thyroid hormone uh, is T4, but only 10% is T3. And they remain attached to thyroglobulin, that's a protein that translocates these hormones because they're lipids, until they're stimulated by the TSH, the stimulating hormone. So the release of both T4 and T3 are lipids, and they diffuse from the follicle directly into circulation because they can traverse through membrane. What about the thyroid action on cells, thyroid hormone action on cells? Again, carrying circulation, and they're bound to a thyroid-binding protein. A small percentage gets dissolved in the plasma as a free hormone, and it is able to directly cross into the target cell. It's by simple mass diffusion. Once in the cell, T3 binds to its receptor and exerts its actions, which are mediated through alteration in gene description, so it affects transcription rates. T4 is acted upon by an enzyme that cleaves one of the iodine molecules to form either the active T3 or a mirror image or an antimer T3 that in the older literature is called reverse T3. I told you that T3 in the end is the dominant biological form, didn't I? Okay, right now we can just spend a few minutes on the thyroid hormone. I mean, excuse me, we finished thyroid hormone, steroid hormones, because I want to spend a lot more time on this. The adrenal medulla secretes epinephrine and norepinephrine in response to, of course, the sympathetic nervous system stimulation. The hormones that are produced in the adrenal cortex are mostly steroids, and they include the following, the glucocorticoids, which the name sounds, they are involved in glucose metabolism. The major one there is cortisol. The mineral corticoids, the most dominant form there is aldosterone. And then the so-called sex steroids, which are androgens and estrogens. Adrenal cortex has distinct zones, a different histological appearance, regulation, and the enzymes for the synthesis of all these steroids. The outer zona Glomerulosa produces the mineral corticoid aldosterone in response to a stimulation. The middle zona fasciculata produces the glucocorticoid cortisol in response to ACTH. And the inner zona reticularis is adjacent to the adrenal medulla and it produces the androgen DHEA. You get the idea that there is a zonal regulation as well as an enzymatic pathway organized specific steroidogenesis. So again, let me go through this real quickly. The zona glomerulosa starts with cholesterol. All the, sub, the substrates for all these reactions are cholesterol. You make pregnenolone, and that's converted to progesterone, to 11-deoxycorticosterone, finally to corticosterone and then to 18-hydroxycorticosterone and then on to aldosterone. The zona fasciculata cholesterol is generating pregnenolone to progesterone to 17-hydroxyprogesterone to 11-deoxycortisol, then to cortisol. And finally, the zona reticularis cholesterol concentrations are uh, membrane concentrations are turned into pregnenolone and then into 17-hydroxypregnenolone then to DHEA, as I told you, 
then into D-H-E-A-S, D-H-E-A, uh, and finally, androstenedione. So we're going to stop there. And we're going to then start talking about what all these steroid hormones are involved in, in the human system. But for now, I'm going to stop and say, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry, giving you this general lecture on human hormone metabolism on the 5th of May, 2020. And so, bye for now.